0: Congregation, the Lord knows, the Lord knows that by nature we are great spiritual procrastinators. We happily put off the most important matters in this whole wide world. For another day. And yet the Apostle Paul, as you see in his preaching in the book of Acts and also in our passage for today, is not content to let us remain spiritual procrastinators. And so our theme for this message For this text today is simply this, a plea for today. This isn't about Monday morning. This is a plea for today. And our points in this message today are these. A plea for today, we beseech you as co-laborers with the Lord. That's our first point. Secondly, we beseech you to receive not the grace of God in vain. Thirdly, we beseech you because God will hear you in His accepted time. And fourth, this afternoon we beseech you because that time is now. A plea for today. First, we beseech you, Paul says, as co-laborers with the Lord, please follow along if you have your Bibles open in verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul says this, we then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. What is Paul saying here? Paul is looking out from a distance at the Corinthian church, and he's re- reminding them that he, as the Apostle Paul, as well as Timothy and, and others likely with him, were not pleading with them to be reconciled to God on their own behalf as apostles or as pastors. Paul is saying, it's not our pet agenda that you become Christians Or that the Corinthian church grow in spiritual maturity. Paul didn't want more followers for himself. Paul is saying, we're beseeching you as workers together with him. Who's the him in our verse? If you look back to the previous verses in chapter 5, you find out that Paul is talking here about God. He's talking here about Christ as workers together with with Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm on God's mission. I'm on God's agenda. I'm I'm pleading with you on God's behalf. And I want us to notice something in verse 1. You read that long phrase there translated, as workers together with Him, as workers together With him. That's actually one word in the Greek, in the original, just one word. And it's a word that's related to the word synergy in our language. You can translate it as co-laborers or as the ones working together. It's actually a, a participle in the original, which you could which is could be described as a verbal adjective, a verb adjective, and it's in the present tense. So Paul is looking out at the Corinthian church and he's saying. Even at this moment, even as I write these words, even as you are reading these words, I am co-laboring now with Jesus, with, with God, with the Almighty God for the salvation of your soul. And this is a good reminder for us, isn't it? Because that means that the same dynamic is happening today. You think about it. For the last weeks, the last months, the last years, the pastors, the elders, the deacons who've, who've pleaded with you maybe personally to, to be reconciled to God through Christ. They're not doing this work, if you will, alone. It's not just them coming, knocking on your door, having a conversation with you and asking on their behalf. They're doing it on the behalf of God. They're doing it with God. They're, they're co-laborers with God. God. And Paul's just said the same thing, hasn't he, in in the later verses of chapter 5? We read them. Now then, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? He's not bringing his own message. He has no authority in himself. He's bringing the message of the king. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God Did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. In other words, Paul is saying when he or Timothy or other elders or deacons or or even myself here today, and I, I say to you, believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and believe in Jesus Christ, that's not my message. I'm not arguing with you ultimately. That's God's message. That's that's God arguing with you, co-laboring. We are co-laboring with God for the salvation of your soul. And this principle applies beyond the church, doesn't it? It means that if you've had a conversation with someone and they've begun to gently maybe or maybe more vigorously argue with you? You shouldn't be living that way. You're, you're living in sin. You're living in unbelief. You need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's not them. We look at them. We, well, they're arguing. No, that's God arguing with them, with you, to believe in Jesus Christ. They're just ambassadors pleading on God's behalf that you be reconciled to Jesus. So think about this for for a minute. Look back in your life. Of course, I don't know your stories, your hearts, but God does. Think about these last months, these last years. How many times has, has God, through a friend, through a sibling, a parent, a son or a daughter, come to you and begun to argue with you, to believe in Him. You know, sometimes when perhaps you've had this, you've argued with people or you've you've tried to persuade them to believe in Jesus Christ and and they've, they've responded to you, well, it's just you trying to persuade me to become a Christian. And If you persuade me, and then I believe, then that's not God's work. That's your work, and so it's not a real work. I'm not truly saved if you persuade me to repent and believe in Jesus. But is that what the Scripture teaches? Is that what our text says? No, our text says that we are co-laboring with God. When the minister, when your friend, when your parents' children, Parents, when your children argue with you to believe in Jesus Christ, they are doing it on the behalf of God. Paul says that too, doesn't he, in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And this is highlighted even more if you look at this word in our text, beseech. You see that there, children, if you have your Bibles open? That word beseech, that's an interesting word. In the original, I'll give you a a word here from the original. It's the word parakaleo. It's related to the word paraclete. Some of you know that word. Paraclete, a title given to the Holy Spirit. It's a word that means to urge, to to exhort, to implore, to argue. And so Paul is reminding us that just as he was, was doing the work of the Holy Spirit by persuading the, the, the sinners in the Corinthian church to believe on Jesus Christ. Saying we should do the same thing. It's not a bad thing to persuade people to believe in Jesus. John Calvin, it's interesting, he, when he taught to his church in Geneva on this text, he said it's not enough to just teach people about the gospel. You need to urge them. You need to persuade them. All of you know people who are persuasive. They can just persuade you of anything. We need to be like that. Persuade people to believe on Jesus Christ. So think again back to your life. Is this what God's been doing in your life? To different people, your Bible reading, your conscience, to the preaching, arguing with you to believe on Jesus Christ. And if he's been arguing with you, has he won the argument? Has he persuaded you to use Paul's language in Romans 10? To submit yourself to the righteousness of Christ? To repent and to believe in Jesus? Have you been persuaded? Is that your persuasion? And then if you have been persuaded, are you beginning to make it your business to persuade others? To argue with others? not just to let people float on their way to hell, but to argue with others, to believe in Jesus. This was Paul's burden. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you. And this, our second point brings this home in a very pointed way because look what, look what he says. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God, in vain. You receive not the grace of God in vain. What, what's, this, what's this plea, this exhortation of God through Paul, through us here today, to us here today? It's that we receive not the grace of God in vain. Now, that's a sobering thing to hear, isn't it? Because it means something. It means that we can receive the grace of God in vain, doesn't it? It means we can receive the grace of of God in vain. When the gospel is preached, it can go in one ear and out the other. We go home and forget, forget all about it. Monday morning comes and we're busy. It's gone. It's receiving the grace of God in vain. Or we can open our Bibles in the morning and, and read our Bibles and, or, or, or in family worship and we shut it and we're off to the day. Off to the races. Don't think about it for another minute the rest of the day. Receiving the grace of God in vain. Or, or the preaching of the gospel as we've been speaking, to repent and believe. How we ignore it. We receive the grace of God in vain. God Himself can plead with us through His Word. This is His Word, isn't it? He can plead with us, and we can just turn away. Well, no, I'm not interested in listening to the argument of God today. And so Paul says, I'm pleading with you. I'm exhorting you. I'm arguing with you. Don't receive the gospel preaching in vain. Don't walk out and refuse to believe it. Don't walk out and refuse to live it in your lives. And this is so important, congregation, especially for, as we spoke this morning, for covenant children, which the vast majority, if not all, are here today. Baptized into the covenant. You think about what God has to say to covenant children, especially. He has sober words, doesn't he? Paul says, Paul says, The author of Hebrews says that we must not count the blood of the covenant with which we are sanctified, a vain thing, an unholy thing. You realize that? As covenant children, we're sanctified by the blood of Christ. Yes, in an external way, but there is a setting apart. And Hebrews says, as a covenant child, don't don't despise that. He also says, don't don't despise the spirit of grace. The word in the original there in in Hebrews is, don't insult him. Don't insult him. When he argues with you, don't insult him by turning the other way. Now, some people will say to this, and especially this happens in the church, they'll say, well, it's not possible to argue with the grace of God. It's not possible. If God truly gives me his grace, I won't be able to resist it. And so I can't receive the grace of God in a vain way. And they might even quote Romans 9. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and a compassion on whom he will have compassion. Until until I know he's merciful to me, I must not presume upon his grace. So I will just sit here and do nothing. But this is very sad. This is very, very sad. It tells you a couple things when people make these arguments. It tells you, first, there's a deep misunderstanding about the doctrines of grace and the doctrines of election. Second, that there's sort of this, it's, it's really a sinful desire to, to peer into the hidden things of God, to know something that God has not revealed to you, your election. But then thirdly, and even more sadly, it, it tells you that there's a, there's a lack of urgency to flee from the wrath which is to come. Let me give you an example. Imagine, imagine a man. Just pick, children, picture, you picture this too. Imagine a man, he's standing in, in the second story window of a burning apartment building and, and there's firemen below him and they've got a safety net that he can jump into or whatever they use today to jump into. And, and they're pleading with him to jump from the burning building. Now, can you imagine that man standing there? And, and he refused to jump. He won't jump, he won't jump, he won't jump because he's having a debate in his mind as to whether it is the will of God that he jump or not. Can you, can you imagine that? Well, no, of course not. That man would jump. Why? Oh, because he feels the flames. He feels the flames. And so it is with those who receive the grace of God in vain. They, 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 they should jump, but they don't feel the flames hot enough. The flames of God's hell, hot enough to jump into the arms of Jesus. They don't feel it strong enough, and so they receive the grace of God in vain. We say, that's insanity, and it is, to receive the grace of God in vain. Jonathan Edwards, you know Jonathan Edwards. In his church in Northampton, he preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he reminded his hearers, who had grown kind of apathetic to the gospel, he he reminded them of, of this. I want to read to you this extended quote. He said, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much in the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked, His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his sight than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely, more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand. It holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. That you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning. But that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given while you have been hearing this address but His mercy, yea, no other reason can be given why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Do we wrestle with that? Do we? You know, we, we say this in our doctrinal statements that God hates sin, God hates also the sinner. Jonathan Edwards was right. It sounds rough to our ears. But if we're outside of Christ, we are abominable in His sight. We are loathsome to Him. And yet, we just row our way merrily down the stream of life, and we ignore God. Paul says, don't do that. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. And this becomes even more pressing in our third point, because God makes it so clear that he will hear us. He will hear us in his accepted time. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. His words are a quotation from the Greek translation of the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and you can look it up later if you like, chapter 49, verse 8. In the context of that, passage is that God the Father is there speaking to God the Son and and in God the Son to everyone in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he is declaring a great gospel principle that God always hears his people in the acceptable time. He always hears his people in the acceptable time. But that's what's the question that rises from that? What's the acceptable time? What's the day of salvation? What's the acceptable time? Well, most specifically, in a redemptive historical sense, this acceptable time was was the day begun by Jesus when he was born to die upon the cross. That's the the most specific reference here in Isaiah and also, of course, in 2 Corinthians. But more broadly than that, this this acceptable time is is any point in time in the Old Testament or in the New Testament when Jesus Christ is set forth in the preaching of the gospel. That's the the day, the acceptable day that Paul is referring to here. And there's a real beauty in this this phrase because we we translate it here in the the AV, I have heard thee in a time accepted. Uh, John Calvin translates it this way, I have heard thee in a time of benevolence. Well, that's a nice word, isn't it? a time of benevolence, a time of of gentleness, a time where there's a willingness to be received. Children, you can think of the, the father and the prodigal son. Remember that son, what a bad child he was, running away from home, living in pleasure. And yet all the while, the father was out there waiting, watching for his son. That was a time of benevolence. He was waiting, an acceptable time. Or think of this example, and this may be what Paul has in mind here, an example that was common in Isaiah's day, and also in Paul's day. If a a conquering king arrived at the the borders of a land, there would often be terms sent. You understand that? There would be terms sent to the king of that country, saying, listen, I'm I'm here at the border of your country, I'm going to overrun your country, but, but, but here's my terms, if you will lay down your arms... Within such and such a time, I will not destroy you, but instead I will come peacefully to you and reign over you. Your term sent. And, and really, the, the, the situation here is the same spiritually. Because here, Jesus Christ is coming to us, and he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm coming to you here. If you will not listen, I will destroy you, but I'm coming to you in an acceptable time, where you can be received in grace by me. And the wonder of this time is this, that it has nothing to do with with you and me here. You see that? It doesn't have anything to do with us. We're rebels. We're sinners. We deserve to have that king destroy us. But the acceptable time comes because of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has made the acceptable time an acceptable time. He, he's turned a day of judgment into a day of benevolence. He's, if you will, opened that doorway to allow us to come into the favorable presence of God. Paul says it in the previous chapter. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You can think of it, children, in terms of the Garden of Eden. What, what stood in the way of Adam and Eve going back to the Garden? I think you know the answer, children. There was a flaming sword, wasn't there? A flaming sword. They couldn't get back in. But Jesus Christ has removed that flaming sword. He allows sinners to come in through himself. He makes a day of judgment and he turns it into a day of benevolence. But then this also raises something important, doesn't it? Because if there's a time of acceptance, if there's, a, if there's an acceptable time, then that also means that It's not an undefined time. It's not going to go on forever. There's there's a certain definition to the time. There's a certain time when the scepter is held out. There's a certain time when when the drawbridge is down, if you will, into the kingdom of God. There's a certain time when the door is open to, to come into the favorable presence of God. There's a certain time when the Father's arms are open wide in Jesus Christ. And the call for us is to receive that. To not wait, but to, to run in now. And that's emphasized in our fourth point because Paul makes it undeniably clear that that day is now. It's not tomorrow. It's now. For he saith, verse 2, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold now. Behold Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Not children when you become a teenager. Teenagers, not when you become a young adult. Young adults, not when you get married and have kids. Not parents when you become a grandparent. Not grandparents when you're on your deathbed. It doesn't say that. It says, now is the accepted time. Time. Now is the day of salvation. You might think of it this way Jesus Christ stands before us with a drawn sword. Think of a king with a drawn sword. And he's holding it out to us. And it's got two edges to it. Well, one side can be used to save us, to destroy our enemies, destroy our sin. But the other side is a sword of judgment. And Jesus says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Now is the time of acceptance. Not tomorrow. Now is the time of acceptance. You see, Jesus has finished the atonement. He's become sin for us. He's defeated death. He's chained the devil. He now sits at the right hand of God, and all things are being put under his feet. And he says, now is the time. Now is the time. I will return soon. Now is the day of salvation. You know, one of the great truths of God's character that we love to talk about, and and rightly so, is that God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He's long-suffering. In in Psalm 103, we sing this sometime, and, and we love to sing it. I love to sing it. Good is the Lord, and full of kind compassion, most slow to anger, plenteous in love, rich is His grace to all that humbly seek Him, boundless and endless as the heavens above. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. That's all our hope. That's all our salvation. But here's the other side of it. That for those who will not receive that, those who will not humble themselves and seek for that grace, there comes an end to that long suffering of God. There comes an end to the long suffering of God. Wherefore, the book of Hebrews says... enter into my rest." There was an acceptable day for them, 40 years. They turned it away. What about you? You don't know how long your acceptable time will last. Are you turning it away? One of the great lies of the devil is this, that not today but tomorrow is the day of salvation. Tomorrow Oh, my conscience is pricking me today, but the devil says, just wait till tomorrow. It's inconvenient to deal with God now. Wait till tomorrow. You got time. Or, or a friend comes to you and argues with you about the gospel. You say, well, I'll have a chance to talk with them again. I'll deal, I'll deal with it then. Or, or you're reading your Bible and, and it pokes at you a little bit. You say, oh. I really should deal with Jesus. But I'll put it off till tomorrow. The devil tempts you. No. No. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Paul says, the Spirit of God says, today, today, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And the question is, will we, will we be persuaded by God? Of this fact. Will we bow to his arguments now? Will we confess the wretched condition of our own souls? Will we confess that the flames are burning at our backs? Like Edward said, we're like a spider hung over the pit of hell, held up only by the mercy of God. Will we admit that and deal with God today? Say, Lord, I'm such a sinner. I've been playing around with hell. I'll be playing around with your wrath. Lord, that it might not be too late for me. Lord, that you might have mercy on me. Lord, you say in your word that now is the acceptable time. Lord, hear me now, tonight. Receive me. Forgive my sins now, Lord. Lord, I've just heard that Jesus has become sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Lord, make him my righteousness. Lord, I've just heard that you're, you're co-laboring with the minister to persuade me to become saved. Lord, persuade me. Make me bow the knee, Lord. Lord, I, I, and as I'm being persuaded, I must do this. I must confess my sin. I must seek forgiveness in you. O oh God, according to thy grace, be merciful to me. In thy abounding love blot out, all my iniquity. O oh, wash me wholly from my guilt and make me clean within. For my transgressions I confess I ever see my sin. And Lord, in myself, I could never do it. I could never come to you. I'd be so lazy. But Lord, you're you're persuading me, You're, you're compelling me through the Spirit, through the Word to come. And so I must come, I must put my trust in Jesus now, not tomorrow, but now, today, tonight. I must believe that Jesus Christ has also died for me, today. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you remember the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple? The Pharisee says, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not as other men, sinners. And like that man over there, what's the sinner doing? Lord, Be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say about that man who said that prayer from his heart? That man went down to his house justified, declared eternally righteous in the court room of God. Why will you not do that? Humble yourself, confess your sins, and be saved by Jesus. You see, if you don't do that, It's a fact, isn't it? We all know this. There's a clock ticking in your life. Children, think about a clock ticking, tick, 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 tick. And every single one of us has a clock in heaven, and God knows exactly when that clock is going to strike midnight, when our time will be finished. We might be in the middle of all our plans and dreams, but God says, no, the time is finished, the acceptable time is now ended. The book is closed of your life. There's no more hope. Don't wait. Come to Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Remember the story of the, 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 the virgins, the ten unwise virgins. They weren't ready for Jesus, were they? He came, and he went into the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And they they tried to hurry. Well, let's get ourselves ready now. And they came, and they they knock on the door. And what does Jesus say? Just sad words. They say, Lord, Lord, open to us. He says, verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, Jesus says. For ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So which side of the door will you be on when your clock strikes midnight? Don't be distracted by the things of this life. Social media, your emails, your friends, your TV shows, whatever it might be that gets in the way of dealing with the Almighty God. Deal with Him today. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen.